following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Bonfires are just a great way to spend an evening, right? It's great to sit out around a fire, to be warm, make some s'mores, to enjoy conversation with people around you. But at the end of the night, if you've ever been around a fire like that, there's something you probably need to do. Put the fire out, right? It's probably a good idea to put the fire out. Now, how do you do that? Now, there's a few methods you can use, but if I were to take a poll and ask each one of you individually, I'm guessing the most common response would be what? Anybody? Water. You put water on the fire. Why? Why do you put water on a fire? Well, because it puts the fire out. Duh. Yeah, I know that. (laughs) But why would you put water on a fire? Because water does two things to a fire. It adds two points of resistance for that fire that's burning. One, it cools the heat. And number two, it smothers the fire. If that water falls on it, the, the oxygen can't get to the fire. So it cools and it smothers the fire at the same time. Now, last week, as we started this, this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, we saw that Paul called Timothy and, and us, by extension, to rekindle the fire of his faith. He did this because he knew that Timothy was up against some opposition to God's church and to God's kingdom, opposition that would seek to cool the passion of his fire and to smother it with heresy and half-truths. And he wanted Timothy not to get caught up in that opposition, but he wanted Timothy to be able to fan the flame of his faith, to keep it burning hot. He wanted him to continue to stoke that fire. Our faith, like Timothy, meets plenty of resistance as well, right? We face plenty of opposition in our world, in our our culture, and in our time that constantly seeks to pour water on the fire of our faith. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is how can we live in such a way that we can persist in rekindling the fire that God has lit in our hearts? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12, Paul shows Timothy and shows us how this can be achieved. And it all comes down to how we lived, live with a Christ-focused, a, a gospel-centric confidence in our lives. And he shows this in three ways. First, he says, if we want to continue to stoke that fire, if we want to continue to fan the flames of our faith, as everything around us seeks to cool us and smother us, then we must live with confidence through suffering. Confidence through suffering. Paul continues in the letter, and and we're going to just read verse 8 here. Paul says, So don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel. Paul sets the stage for this section of the letter with this simple command don't be ashamed. Right? He says, so don't be ashamed. What's the so point back to? Well, last week he said, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, 
but one of power and love and sound judgment. Since you don't live in fear, since you live in the power, the love, and the sound judgment of the Holy Spirit, then you don't need to be ashamed. Now, we read this and and we talk about being ashamed, and we all have our different ideas about this, but we sometimes miss that if you go back into the first century, this idea of, of shame or honor was central to the life of the first century believer. It was central to the life of of the first century Jewish and Mediterranean world. It was a foundational social reality for them, a prime motivator or hindrance to the way one acts. In fact, in his book on, on ethics, the philosopher Aristotle, who lived about 400 BC, he claimed that there are only two, two motivators for people's choices, honor and pleasure. Honor, however, was the first and most powerful. Okay, what's that got to do with being ashamed? Well, honor in that context meant living, doing, being in such a way that society valued you. The opposite of honor was shame. To live in shame was living in such a way that lacked honor, that was not a value to the world around you, which meant that made you not valuable. And so in the first century that Paul is writing this, this idea of shame or honor was crucial. Everybody wanted to live with honor. I I, I think even today we get some of that, but it's not the same. We don't place the same kind of value on that that they would have in that day. So when Paul says, listen, don't be ashamed, he's saying a very serious thing to Timothy. He says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Instead, instead of being ashamed, live with this confidence. And what's he, what's he not to be ashamed of here? It says, the testimony of Jesus Christ and Paul. Jesus Christ, again, take yourself out of these seats here today and put yourself in like 67 AD, about 30 years after Jesus has been crucified. If you go into a Roman village, what would they say about Jesus? He was a condemned, crucified criminal who led a religious uprising. So for Timothy and Paul to align themselves with Jesus, outside of the Christian faith, they're aligning themselves, they're aligning themselves with a condemned prisoner who died, not because he was Jesus, but because he was a criminal. Is that the way you want your life aligned if you're looking to live with honor or be seen as honorable? No. And Paul takes it a step further. He says, and don't be ashamed of me either, right? And who's Paul at this point? He's a man sitting in prison who is, again, according to tradition, about to die. He's about to be put to death. So again, a condemned criminal. If Timothy wants to live with honor, he doesn't associate with criminals. But Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Instead, he says, instead, you live with confidence. He says, Timothy, endure suffering for the gospel by God's power. And what he's really telling Timothy is, listen, Timothy, you can be confident 
in your suffering, in the way people think about you, in the way people talk about you, in the, the, the opposition that comes up against you. You can be confident when you suffer, not because you suffer, but because of who you suffer for. That's the key distinction for Timothy. He doesn't have to worry about the honor of the culture around him because he knows he suffers for the gospel of Jesus Christ by God's power. So many times in our lives, you, if you followed the Lord for more than five minutes, you know there are times in our lives where we will find ourselves intimidated, maybe even ashamed to speak up. And we will find it undeniably easier to disavow our allegiance to Christ than to boldly hold our convictions. Amen? You ever been there? I've been there many, many times. In James chapter four, verse seven, all right, James says, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Oftentimes we read that verse and we're like, okay, if we just submit to God, then, then Satan's gonna run away. That's awesome, right? Thumbs up. But we forget the implications of that verse because what's happening to us right now if he says resist the devil and he will flee from you? It means he's right next to you right now. I mean, he, he's, he's in your space. He is attacking you. He says, you're, you're gonna face difficult times. He says, you trust the Lord, submit to God, resist the devil. When he is right there, when he is on the attack and he will flee from you. It's a promise that James makes there. It's a promise that James makes that you will face opposition, that you will suffer for your faith and you will suffer in your faith. For us to be confident through suffering, we must prepare ourselves to be okay with suffering. Is there a less American statement than that? We must be okay with suffering. We must be okay with being attacked by a culture that calls us hateful, that calls us bigots, that calls us simpletons, that will call us intellectual pygmy, or any number of unfair and untrue classifications that may be made about the Christian faith. But if we remember that that opposition comes not first and foremost against us, but against our Lord and Savior, then we can remember that it's not really about us. Jesus says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. When you are attacked, when you are opposed because of your faith, understand that that is first and foremost an attack on the Lord. And so if that is an attack on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is victorious in his life, his death and his resurrection, what do we have to fear in that attack? See, we can remain confident because our strength 
is not in being accepted by a culture, being accepted by those who have already rejected Jesus Christ. Our confidence comes in being accepted by our perfect, holy, heavenly Father who has loved us, who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who has brought us into his family for no good reason whatsoever, if we're perfectly honest, other than his love, his grace, and his mercy. Listen, if that's the source of our confidence... What attack in this world, in this life, stands a chance against us? And listen, I know, (laughs) I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. That doesn't make it feel better in the moment. That doesn't make the attack and the opposition by someone you thought was a close friend or a family member or a business partner or a coworker or a neighbor, it doesn't make that feel better in the moment. But if we refuse to be ashamed, then we will have the strength to stand confident even in those attacks. We'll have the confidence to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, as Jesus calls us to in Matthew 5. But the question is, will we allow our circumstance, will we allow even our hurt in the moment to suppress the boldness and the clarity of our faith? Will we allow the attack to undermine our confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So if we're gonna live in a way that continues to rekindle the flame, to fan the flame of our faith, we have confidence through suffering. But second, in the face of opposition, If we're to keep our fire burning, we must live with a confidence of purpose. A confidence of purpose. Verses 9 and 10, and I'm actually going to read verse 8 through verse 10 here. So again, verse 8. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul charged Timothy with confidence in suffering for the sake of, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 9 and 10, he lays out exactly what that means. He says three things. He says, God saves, God calls, and God offers eternal life. He says, for God, he's the one who saves us. The one Timothy suffers for is the one who offers the free gift of salvation. It's not Timothy's good works. It's not Timothy's mission. It's not Timothy's purpose that saves him. It is God who saves him. And as God saves him, God also calls him, right? Timothy's mission was never about his abilities, his skills as a a leader or a preacher. It was about God's grace and God's purpose. And we'll go back to Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10. Maybe some of the most Maybe some of the most important verses of the Bible. I know they're all important, okay? But man, 
Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you are saved by grace through faith and it is not of yourself. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Man, so much in that verse. But it's not we who save ourselves. It is God who saves us by his grace when we trust in him knowing that God created us for a purpose. And he's the one who's gonna set that purpose. He's the one who's gonna lay the path before us. God saves, God calls. Then it says God offers immortality, the eternal life. In Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the one in whom all things hold together, the one who is reigning and ruling, it is in him that purpose is found. Again, what Paul is laying out is simply the gospel. He's saying, Timothy, don't forget, you suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is that? It's that God is sovereign. He created us to know him and love him and live in perfect unity with him. And we continually choose to reject him for that. And because we rejected him, there's no reason for God to save us. We have earned death. We have earned an eternal separation from a good, holy, and perfect God. There is no earthly reason for God to save us. And yet, in his infinite love and mercy, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, to live the perfect life that you and I failed to live, to die a sacrificial death, allowing his blood to pay the penalty for our sin so that he could rise, defeating death once and for all so that we no longer live enslaved to the 80, give or take years that we have on this planet. But we are welcomed into the eternal, holy presence of a good, perfect God. We are delivered from ourselves and delivered into God's family and God's kingdom. This is all the work of a good, holy, and perfect God. It's nothing we could earn. It's nothing we could ever deserve. Paul says, Timothy, don't, don't forget this. You think Timothy hasn't heard this a time or two? Right? He traveled with Paul. I guarantee Timothy's heard this many, many times. Why does Paul say it again? Because it's that important. Never, ever, ever forget this. Paul says, this isn't about me. This isn't about you. This is about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Listen, we, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, we don't put our trust in religious rituals or acts. We don't put our trust in theological ideas. We put our trust, our hope, our joy, our confidence in a reigning and ruling king. Jesus Christ has been victorious, which means whatever situation we face in life, whatever place we find ourselves in, in this life can be redeemed by the one who rules. Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. What that really means 
As it says, listen, you can have whatever idea you want. You can go about whatever way you want to go about making a decision in your life, but realize you are not in charge. You are not in control. The God of creation is in charge. Now, not every situation in our lives is that way because God made it that way, right? That's determinism. That's not the way it works. Sometimes we find ourselves in difficult places. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations of opposition because of the sins of other people. Sometimes we have doubts about our faith and about our God because we want concrete answers. Sometimes we feel distant from the Lord because we have turned away from him or we've tried to justify our own sins in our lives. Yeah, I know that, that but you, you don't really understand, God. It's okay for me. Not every situation is that way because God made it that way. But in Christ, every situation in which we find ourselves can be redeemed for the glory of our God and of his kingdom. Suffering teaches us a stronger dependence upon the Lord. Doubts teach us a greater trust. Distance teaches us a gratitude for closeness. Romans chapter five, verse three and four, Paul writes, and not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. Right, he says, listen, we, we boast in our afflictions. He's not saying we're happy we go through hard times. He's not saying, hey, look at how bad things are for me right now. But he says, I know that God can work through whatever situation happens in my life, wherever I find myself, and will draw me nearer to him if I will surrender myself to him. So whatever your trial may be, whatever the opposition is you're facing today, no matter how big, no matter how small it may be, no matter what it may feel like to you, remember that that situation can be a fertile soil in your life that God can use to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom. But it's a matter of where we will find victory in that situation. If we go into that situation, we go, man, God, I hope you redeem this. Now, here's how you're going to do it. Let me show you. Let me give you the roadmap. God, I, I, I got a great idea. This is going to be awesome. Watch how you work. That, that doesn't work. That's us trying to overcome. That's that surrender. That's control. But if we're willing to let God work, and again, that doesn't mean we sit back and just go, God, do all the work. We got work to do. But the question is whether we will surrender and submit ourselves to him and allow him to redeem the situation at hand. When our fire needs rekindling, we turn to the Lord in confidence. In a confidence that he can offer purpose to any and every situation. That only works if we rest our confidence in his work. So from where will we draw our confidence of purpose? Will it be in our works, our ideas, our hopes, 
or will it be in the work of our God? We have confidence through suffering. We have a confidence of purpose. Finally, because we're confident in God through suffering and because we're confident of his purposes, then we are able to live faithfully with a confidence in calling. Confidence in calling. This passage ends, verse 11 and 12, and it says, For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Confidence in calling. And Paul says, listen, we've we've talked about the gospel. He says, "I, I know this gospel. And it's for this gospel that I have been called to mission. And because I know that, I have no reason to be ashamed, right? Paul's sitting in prison, waiting to be executed. And he says, I, I have no shame in this whatsoever. Because I know who's in charge. I know who I suffer for. I know who gives purpose to what I'm doing. And I know who called me to be in this place at this time and for this purpose. He knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the center of his purpose and the center of his calling. And he wants Timothy to follow that example in boldness in the face of suffering and opposition and in the purposes that God has in store for him. Paul says, I've been, I've been called to be a, a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. And what, what he's really saying there is uh, a herald is, is one who proclaims a message. The apostle is one who is divinely sent And the teacher is one who passes on the message that he has received. And so Paul says, listen, I know I've been called to proclaim Jesus Christ because God has sent me to do this. And I want to share this message with whoever I can. Paul knows who he is. And Paul knows what God has called him to do. And that gives him confidence in the effectiveness of his work and of the work that God's doing in Timothy. None of this is about Paul's desires, Paul's thoughts. It's about what he knows God has called him to do. It's a confidence in God's calling. When I go home this afternoon, we're gonna eat lunch and I'm gonna pass out on the couch. But before I pass out on the couch, I'm gonna turn on the TV and there'll be something on the TV while I fall asleep. I don't really care what it is because I'm going to be asleep. But <laughs> I'll grab the remote and I'll turn the TV on. You know what percentage of me thinks when I press that remote button, it's not going to turn on? Zero. I am confident that when I press that button, it's going to turn on the TV. You know why? Because I got a magic thumb. No. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my ability to push a button. I trust in the mechanism that's there. I trust that the remote's going to do what the remote's supposed to do and the TV's going to do what it's made to do. Listen, we 
all have, every single one of us in this room has a divine calling. God has designed and equipped each one of us for kingdom work. First Peter chapter four, verse 10 and 11 says, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. So he says, you've each been given a gift. Every single one of us has been given a gift. And the calling is to use it to serve others to serve God's kingdom by loving those around us. See, our job in our calling in this life is not to pick and choose the right calling for us. Our responsibility is not to say, well, God, here's what I like, so put me into work here. And if you say no, I'm not doing it. Like I'm doing this or nothing, so you better call me here. No, our, our, our job is to be ready, willing, and available when God gives us an opportunity. Because here's the thing, God knows you better than you know yourself. You may think this is how I'm called to serve. That may not be how you are called to serve in any way, shape, or form. That may be the way you want to serve. And maybe God's gonna take what you wanna do and give you that. I don't know. It's not for me to tell you. All I know is that our calling is to be ready willing and available when God calls. And so the question might be, well, okay, so, so how do I do that, right? Like, that sounds great. That sounds good. Okay, so what do I do? I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> let, me, let me give you three, three questions to ask yourself this week. Three questions to walk through to help, to help move us in the right direction. First question is this. What opportunity has God put before me? What opportunity has God put before me? Paul did not set out to be a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. Paul set out to be one of the religious elite in Israel. One of the Jews who runs the religious community. But God calls him away from that and into his kingdom, and God calls him to be what God has called him to be. It's not about what Paul wanted. It's about the opportunity that God gave Paul. So what is the opportunity that God sets before you and me? Number two, who's blessed by my presence? As I respond to the opportunity God's given me, who is blessed by that? In 1 Samuel chapter 14, there's a great story of, of Jonathan, the, the prince of Israel, son of King Saul. And Jonathan's out one day and he, he looks across this valley and he sees a bunch of Philistines and he looks at his armor bearer. There's a guy who kind of runs with him and, and carries his armor. And he says, hey, Let's go take out the Philistines. All right, so through the course of this, the armor bearer looks at him. He's like, oh, you know, there's, there's two of us. There's a whole bunch of these guys. Jonathan says, let's go. And in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6 and 7, it said, Jonathan said to the attendant who carries his weapons, come on, let's cross over 
to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether it be many or by few. Then listen to verse seven. His armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead, I am completely with you. This is the only story in the Bible we get of this armor bearer. And he is remembered for all of eternity because of this response. He wasn't going to be the hero. We don't even know the armor bearer's name. But God called him to walk with Jonathan. And when God puts it on Jonathan's heart to defend Israel, the armor bearer says, hey, I may not be the best fighter. I don't have any power. I'm not royalty. But Jonathan, you're going, I'm going. I'm going to support you. I'm going to look after you. I'm going to fight alongside of you. Jonathan is blessed in that moment by a faithful armor bearer. I highly doubt that's what the armor bearer had in mind for the day when he set out that morning. But God gave him the opportunity and he blessed Jonathan. In the same way, you and I are uniquely designed to serve and to serve whoever God's put around us, right? You are not me. I am not you. That's a great thing. One of me is plenty. Amen? Amen. (laughs) But God's given us each unique opportunities to love and bless those around us. The question is, who's blessed by my presence, by my obedience? Third question. Is this about Christ or is this about me? Ooh. about Christ or is this about me? And what I, is what I am doing an attempt to elevate me, to make others think a certain way about me, to honor me, to respect me? Or is it about bringing glory and honor to Jesus Christ? If it's about you, don't be confident. And in fact, stop what you're doing. Knock it off. It's about Christ. Be confident. Continue to fan the flame because God is using you in your calling. If we're to fan the flames of our faith into a blazing fire, we must be operating under the direction of a sovereign God who has created, equipped, and sent us for his purposes. Have we spent time examining our our hearts and our activities and our schedules to make sure we're functioning within God's calling for our lives. Listen, no matter where you're at on your journey with Jesus Christ, we said last week, God has granted you all the fuel you need to burn passionately for your faith. But even so, to sit back and expect that that fire will burn and continue to burn and just burn on forever by itself is a grave mistake. The fire of your faith will encounter opposition that will seek to put out the flame, be they attacks from the enemy, from the sins of a culture, from the idolatry of our own hearts. The opposition will seek to cool and smother our faith like water on fire. We must rest our confidence in the power of our God 
the Father, granted through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and enacted by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. By this, we can carry on in the face of opposition, confident through our suffering for the gospel, confident of our purpose in God's kingdom, and confident in our calling to the service of that message. Church family, may we not be a people of fear, but a people who are confident in the power, the love, and the sound judgment of our reigning and ruling king. In this way, may we live lives that celebrate Jesus' love, grace, and mercy and boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And as we walk into the days ahead that are filled with buckets of water all around us, may we confidently, continually rekindle the fire of our faith that we may burn bright and hot in a dark and cold world. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you that our salvation rests not in who we are, what we can do, but in your love, your grace, your mercy, in your purpose, in your calling. And Lord, we thank you that you have called us into your kingdom and into your family. That we might know you and love you and serve you with every day of our lives. And while we continually face opposition from outside, from the world outside, and even from our own hearts, may you continue to remind us of the confidence we have in you. That our faith might burn brightly for the world to see. Not to see how good we are or how right we are or how smart we are or how whatever we are, but that they might see the glory of your great and your awesome name. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. And in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.